Well, now that we've been assimilated, we can go ahead and move on with the rest of the show. This is another one of those episodes I have no memory of whatsoever. So I'm starting to think I really did skip over some episodes when I rewatched, or excuse me, when I watched season one and two. Either that or it just didn't make an impact on me. But I have a pretty good memory for these kind of things, especially visual and audio memory. So, no, I'm thinking I just never saw this one. <laughs> so I'll just admit to that one. Uh, I'm not sure how or why. Maybe I just accidentally skipped over one. Uh, maybe my copy was weird. I uh, Maybe I switched DVDs in the wrong order. I have no idea. But either way, <clears throat> what I do know is that this episode was surprisingly good. Now, it, I mean, what's interesting is that this is a episode of the week for the most part. Like, the A-plot is, let's go explore, and they find this new nebula. A dark matter nebula, which, let's not even go into that. <clears throat> so I'm like, okay, cool, cool. But that's not really the meat of the episode. Ironically, I think this is one of the few episodes that really fits in Season 2, because it gives us uh, an insight into... It's basically a prequel. It gives us an insight into what happened into the lead-up. And it does... It, this is a world-building episode, something that, if I might be so bold, I think Star Trek needs more of. Uh, not all the time, of course, but a good world-building episode can really help flesh out the rest of the setting and the rest of the... The episodes, the arcs, the characters, and we do a decent amount of it in this one, although I think at least part of that's unintentional. It was written by John Shaban, this is his final entry into the series, and Chris Black, I've mentioned him several times. Uh, we had Burton, I think, directing, I think it was Burton, I don't actually, yeah, I can look it up really quick here. Um, yep, Burton directing, good job as usual. And Keith Carradine was our guest star. And if you're thinking, that sounds familiar, you're probably thinking of at least one of the Carradine family because they've kind of got an acting uh, thing going on. You know, it's, it's, you know, you know. there's a couple of families and it's just the whole family just acts, you know, like the, uh, the Baldwins is another example, right? I mean, all the Baldwins are actors, kind of a thing, similar thing. Anyways, <clears throat> so full-on flashback, uh, establisher, world builder, episode of the week. Uh, let's talk about character death in fiction. My favorite topic. I love it when characters die in fiction. <clears throat> character death actually has to be handled rather carefully. Anybody who watches me probably knows that I have a bit of a reputation for insisting that characters should actually die periodically. There are two reasons for that. First is that I firmly believe that when a character should die and doesn't, that is doing a narrative disservice. Now, I emphasize the way I said that. Should. And the second reason is because, ultimately, and we talked about you know, priorities, you know, direct is what matters most to me in fiction, making sense, remember? The thing that makes, that, that, that's the top for me. The fiction needs to make sense. And if it is in service to the story, if it is in, of benefit to the story, then I think a character should die. Now, Death is not the only way to do that. Uh, death is sometimes used a little bit cheaply in order to establish stakes. This also then leads to undoing death, which causes all sorts of other issues and blah, blah, blah. It shouldn't be a shortcut, is what I'm trying to say. Now, in this episode, we find out that uh, A.G., Mr. Robinson, died uh, prior to the events of the episode. And then we have a flashback where he's in no danger whatsoever. So, well, this kind of lines up strangely, but actually, this isn't too bad. There are three 
general methods to make a character death meaningful when it comes to fiction. Method one, pre. You set up, right? Before the character actually dies, you establish and give us a reason to give a damn. I'm actually not going to name examples because it would be basically impossible to do so without automatically spoiling, but I'm sure you can think of several examples where a beloved character was, and thus we cared about it. Option two, post. This one's trickier and, frankly, much rarer. It's also the kind of thing that I would like to do in my fiction more often, have a character die and then have the death of that character continue to resonate well after they leave the screen. It's also worth noting, especially when it comes to a live-action thing, that, as weird as this may sound, uh, just because a character is dead doesn't mean the actor doesn't have to still have a role, as this very episode shows, because flashbacks are a thing. And there's other methods, depending on the show, but you get the idea. Point being... Character death, and then showing how, you know, it basically establishing after the character has died why we should care about it. Now, if you're paying attention, that's what this episode does. We find out about a character we've never heard of before, who is dead, and then we spend the entire episode building him up so that we can care by the end of the episode. Whether it succeeds or not, who knows? I am, as always, curious of your thoughts. But that leads us to the third option, which is an interesting one. Uh, the third option is to show the impact on the individuals. In other words, have the characters care about the character death. This one's the least successful in my experience, and only really works when paired with one or two of, of the previous two options. Because, you know, oh my god, my, he, was my, he was my father and he's super dead. We don't give a damn, <laughs> because we never knew this character. And we may or may not care about the character who is caring, but we definitely don't care about the character who wasn't caring, a.k.a. the one who's dead. Now, this can work. It's just, like I said, in my experience, it works better when paired with one of the others. And you can use all three of these in whatever combination. You can build up, show impact, and uh, pay off. You, you can do both pre, post, and, uh, and do the thing where people interact and we see it from that. If you're paying attention, this episode does the latter two. We see in Archer's reactions exactly what this death means to him. It's a minor thing, but it is there, and credit to Bakula, he does a good job of acting in it. I know, shocking, Bakula actually does a good job of acting in Enterprise. It's about time, I'm starting to say that more often. There's a lot of Star Trek where I could comment on the quality of the acting, and like most of se almost all of Season 1 and most of Season 2 has just been... <sighs> This guy's not doing well. But, so maybe he found his footing. Maybe he finally got a good director. Maybe they started changing production on the hood. Remember, by this point, the Zindi stuff was already being produced and constructed. And they were already desperate enough to be pushing new elements. So it's possible that there was enough under-the-hood changes that Bakula was either encouraged to or allowed to be a decent actor. But I'm getting off topic. So. <laughs> um... There's a nice, speaking of acting, right, the whole reason I went off on that thing, there's this bit where Archer shows up and Commodore Forrest is informing him of what's happening. And there's this bit, and he's, he's, he's energetic, and he's ready, and he's, sir, and then, and then he hears the news. And there's this pause, and then acceptance, but his tone is noticeably different. I can't do it right now. I'd have to actually put myself in character, and I'm not even going to try. But, you know, he, he just, yes, sir. He's a good choice, sir. I, I, uh, I request the ability to support him and blah, blah, blah. The, that is what I mean by good acting. We see how much of an impact this has on Archer and how much it's bothering him. 
and how much he is trying and struggling not to let it bother him, or perhaps more accurately, not let it show how much it's bothering him. This comes up later when he's talking with Ruby. By the way, continuity, Ruby. There's actually a lot of continuity in this one. We have Ruby, uh, which was directly referenced in uh, Shuttlepod 1. Uh, Gardner is mentioned, which was Saval's pick. Uh, Duvall is mentioned, which is a friend of them from earlier. We, we mentioned Captain Jeffries. We hear about uh, previous astronauts, including Fontana and O'Hara. Oherlahi? Oherlahi. Oherlahi. I don't know how to pronounce that. He only directed one episode of TOS, and I don't um, remember how to pronounce it off the top of my head. Please forgive me. But anyways, a lot of references and a lot of connections, too. Uh, but I'll get into some of those more later. But anyways, yeah, Ruby shows up. And Archer has an interesting line. Because it is both incredibly accurate and incredibly inaccurate at the exact same time. What did Buzz Aldrin say when he first standed up on the moon? Uh-huh. Nobody does. Armstrong was first. Now, I'm curious how many of you can, can prove Archer wrong in the comments right now. But regardless of that, Archer does have a valid point. He does. The big names get the big credit. This I've talked about this many times. Even on my own show, I have a bad habit of mainly trying giving credit to writers and directors and not the other hundred or so people who work on an episode. Now, in my defense, that's kind of beyond the scope of these videos, although I do try to do that as often as I can, and I'd like to think that I did a good job with that over the TOS stuff when I had you know, books to go through when it comes to the behind-the-scenes and learning who worked on what in terms of set design or camera design or lighting design. But the point being, that is very common. Who gets the, who gets the credit for movies and for games, you know? It's, 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 a, it's a Kojima production, because he's the only one who worked on the game, right? Now, what's interesting is even people who acknowledge how silly this is still seem to follow it, including me, as I just mentioned. Why? Because it's not really feasible to sit here and list the hundred people who worked on this and their particular contributions. I do, however, give them credit for that, and their contributions should be marked. It's just, I can't really comment on how this episode's lighting was done uniquely and distinctly from this other episode's lighting, because I, A, I have no information on that, and B, again, beyond the scope of these videos. I'm getting really defensive here, but it's because I myself am against this mentality, even though I also follow it, especially when it comes to the show. I do try to do as much as I can to look into the behind the scenes for every game I play, especially for the streaming side of the show. And I fail miserably at that because there's only so much I can do. And I stream all sorts of things. So, you know, variety show. Anyways, he does have a point, though, is my, is my point. Everyone remembers the big names. Now, the reason he's also incredibly wrong is anybody with any know-how and worth will tell you that the little names not only get as much credit, but tend to get as much overall support, backing, and career pushing. Now, you don't see that. You don't see that in the news. You don't see that in the bulletins. It's not on the poster. It doesn't say, and your name here. Now, you're one of the 5,000 names in the credits at the end of the movie. However, your name is now cycling into a series of, of buckets, and your resume now has another line on it saying, I did the lighting design or the CGI modeling or whatever of this particular film, which means you have just added another nick to your career, which means your career has actually been boosted by that, and hopefully you actually enjoy doing that. It's also interesting to note, and I know this is probably not going to sound like a surprise to most people who are watching this very show right now, but there are plenty of people who don't actually want to be in the limelight. They just want to do their jobs, and they find their particular jobs satisfying or interesting, or maybe they just want the money from it or whatever. 
This is my point, though. Whether or not being first, whether or not being the big name matters or not, is up to the individual. Obviously, it matters to Archer, which is interesting in its own right, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But it doesn't necessarily call through to being valid. You know what I mean? Let me put it another way. I, and I wish I had a perfect analogy for this, and I don't off the top of my head, so please forgive me. I should have prepped one, but I didn't even think about it. If you ask someone, blah, about a topic, they'll be like, oh, you know what? I'll use an obvious one. If you ask a random person on the street about Star Trek, they will probably immediately think of Star Trek The Next Generation or Star Trek The Original Series, mostly by virtue of the movies. And so that's those are the two films, and, or two films, those are the two franchises that have entered public consciousness. Thus, what's the best Trek? Oh, it's, it's those, right? However, if you actually ask someone who is a science fiction fan or a Star Trek fan, someone who has already have a pre-investment in it, well, then you will get like five, six, or twelve different answers, depending on who you're asking. And that is exactly my point. Just because something is popular doesn't really mean it means the end all of whatever the thing is. My take on it. It's also worth noting that I prefer to be a big name. And I'll go ahead and admit that. I prefer to be the kind of person who is on camera, who is the person who has the, you know, the director's seat and is like, yes, I've done this theater and I've done this work and, I, and I'm, you know, I want to make movies and I want to make games. So I will admit to wanting to be a big name. But just because I want to be a Star Destroyer doesn't mean everyone needs to be and doesn't mean I devalue the people who are not Star Destroyers. Real quick, credit if you actually get the reference I'm making. I'm not going to explain it. <clears throat> so, <laughs> I just want to see in the comments how many people get that reference. I really do. Because by this point, it'll be like a year and a half ago. Anyways, <clears throat> so, Starfleet doesn't just want a good pilot. It wants a good captain. Oh, well, I guess they got neither with Archer. Uh, okay, real talk. Stuff like this is exactly why the persistent idea that Archer is in over his head is headcanon. It is. If you look at any of the interviews, if you look at the, the, the pre-launch release, if you look at the marketing material, if you read any of, the, of any, any of the very small amount of material that exists for this show, it is very, very clear. And of course, if you just analyze the work, it's very clear that Archer was intended to be a Star Trek captain which by this point in time has been held up as a particular frame of an ideal, something that you have to aspire to. It's like the super mega ultra high end of, you know, the end of the bell curve, the Batman of Star Trek, right? And while I could see why they would hold that ideal, I've never agreed with that. Uh, while I would agree that there are certain captains who might qualify for that, I'm not even going to name which because that's just going to start an argument, the fact of the idea that a Star Trek captain has to be that is nonsensical to me. It's also worth noting, and I've talked about this many times, especially on Voyager, how irritating it is to me because every interview and every article I've read about that has been done with the tone of, well, the audience needs to know who the, the hero is, and the hero has to always be right, capital R. And that way, you know, they, otherwise they would lose trust in the show. They would tr lose trust in the character. And how could they possibly enjoy this television if they think their character might be flawed? Back in TOS's stuff, and I will slash have been talking about this over on the TOS stuff, one of the biggest fighting points for several of the writers, including Fontana, was trying to add human weakness to both Kirk and Spock and to allow them to show that in episodes. And many times they only got away with it because people weren't paying attention at the particular time when they snuck that into the script. 
compare and contrast to season one TNG, and you really see the the Star Trek captain is right thing right there in season one of TNG. Now, I, I mostly bang on about it because it was a big mentality and indeed a mandate from the executive producers. By the time of Voyager, it was something that was actually going into the casting of who would play Janeway. As the, the captain had to be right, which meant the actress had to be right, as in you know having that confidence of being absolutely correct even when she wasn't. And they had to go through a couple actresses because the actress, well, hang on, what if I'm wrong? No, you can't do that. You'll lose the, you'll lose the audience, you'll lose the actors, and it'll be terrible. So I bring all this up. Because this is just making my point for me even more than I have already made it. The way that this is framed makes it clear that Archer is a good pilot and a good captain, and no, he isn't. But that is headcanon, not canon. So, <clears throat> death of the author discussion, we're walking, we're walking. This uh, leads to an interesting comment. They're doing their warp test with A.G., as the actual guy in the pilot. And there's a Vulcan observer, which makes sense, military allies, and, you know, they do have a tremendous amount of clout in Starfleet at this point in time. And we also, and I want you to remember that, by the way, and we also have Archer being the, the mission control, which is actually kind of a neat little thing. Poor Archer. Hey, you, you get to be uh, the guy in the booth. And I can just I can picture him gritting his teeth at that. I've been the guy in the booth, by the way. It's not that terrible. Forrest is also a Commodore, not an Admiral. Hmm. Keep that in mind, too. So, my favorite analogy for this is exercise. But this applies in a lot of aspects. There's pushing yourself, and then there's pushing yourself too hard. The problem is knowing which is which usually comes down to a little bit of luck, perception, and experience especially experience. So if you're trying something for the first time and you, you probably aren't sure how hard to push to is how hard you can push and how hard you should push and then how hard is too hard. Um, again, exercise is a beautiful analogy for this. If you go out and you hit the gym for the first time, right, or the first time in a year, and you, you are probably not going to have a pretty good idea of how hard you should push yourself. You should push yourself. That is kind of how that works, a lot of aspects. And this is why I say this applies so universally. This applies to mechanics, this applies to engineering, this applies to cooking, this applies to you know, exercise, this applies to flying. You should push yourself, but knowing how far to push, that's the tricky part and that's the dangerous part, as this episode shows, because he pushes too hard and... <sighs> now, what's interesting about that is the episode never actually says whether it's pilot error or engine error, or whatever, and we don't really need to know, because it doesn't really matter, but it is interesting that the episode goes out of its way to not answer that particular question. Small nitpick. There's this bit where they're like, oh my god, Robinson, hey G, hey G, and there's the quiet tension tone in the background, and the whole scene is played as if he just died, and then it even fades to black for a commercial. Why does this irritate me? He's not dead. No, I, I don't just mean because it's a TV show. I mean, we've been flat out told that he lives for like six more years. He just died prior to the events of this episode, not the flashback. He's fine. <laughs> I get that you need your commercial breaks, but that's cheap. Moving on. And I, I note it especially because it's it's a mark and another a marring mark in what I would otherwise consider to be a good episode. So this is when Tucker enters the equation and pushes against the Vulcans right in front of Forrest. Interesting. 
Now, this then leads to headcanon land. Would you care to join me in headcanon land? Bear with me for a moment here. And again, this is headcanon, I guarantee it. But we have a reasonably competent pilot who is not a good captain, but but he's the son of a very famous individual and follows a particular political ideology. He is then backed up in this by a rather skilled engineer who firmly agrees with that ideology. Both of these ideologies happen to coincide with the ideology of a relatively middle-ranked Commodore who later on will be an admiral and a member of Starfleet High Command. Think about it. This is, I mean, it's politics. Not in a bad way, just it's, it's political intrigue. It's, okay, we, and, and th in this case, the ideology, as happens very often, and people just tend to forget about this, uh, when it comes to political disagreements, is not about life or death. It's about, well, should we let the Vulcans keep us back, or should we try to actually get out there and do things? And that is the ideology I was just referencing. There's no, you know, color change, whatever here. It's just, that is a faction. A political faction. It may not have an identity. It may not have a flag and a committee and a website. But it is still a political faction. And we see in this episode four people who are a member of that faction who unify in order to try and push that agenda. One of them be becomes a captain. One of them becomes a chief engineer. One of them gets boosted up to admiral and a member of high command. We also see that Starfleet High Command tends to defer a lot less to the Vulcans in the immediate wake of those events and throughout the course of this show in general. Shifting winds. That's one of the reasons I find this episode so interesting, because I'm almost, almost positive that none of this was intentional. That this is just coincidentally the way that things lined up. But it fits so seamlessly with the way the episode and episodes have been shown that it's hard for me to even call it headcanon at this point. It is headcanon, I'm willing to acknowledge that. But it's so logical and it makes so much sense based on what we're shown here. What do you think? Is there is there something I'm missing here? Is there a hole in this? I, I would love to hear your guys' thoughts, as I often do. Either way, we find out why his name is Trip, because he's Triple Tucker. Also, wouldn't that make, like, the... <laughs> no, I'm not going to make the Wilhelm joke. Um, <laughs> this... <laughs> uh, so, yeah, Tucker has an enthusiasm for engines in general. He is part of the political part, the, you know, the pro... <sighs> I guess the Anti-Vulcan League. We'll go ahead and call them that for the moment. And so he's part of the Anti-Vulcan League. But he also is a big enthusiast for Jonathan Archer's dad's engine. Thus, Archer and Tucker automatically connect rather seamlessly and immediately. And since they'll know each other for the next six years, or I think, I think it's six years, uh, it might be less than that, we will now know why it is that they're so close and why they have stayed so close ever since. Peas, pod, etc., we also have Forrest show up, who I've already kind of met. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. That's later, isn't it? Mm, yep, nope, that is later. Sorry. Uh, what actually happens first is the brawl. A.G. pokes Archer in his daddy issues, which naturally leads to a brawl and a very, very strange commercial break. Whatever. Now, <clears throat> I've talked a lot about the in-the-moment mindset and how emotionally unstable we are in the moment, and how we can make stupid decisions in the moment. One of the things that's kind of adjacent to that, but not quite the same mentality, is, well, it can't get worse. Or, often paired with, oh, who cares? 
I've just been fired. I might as well, you know, rob from the office before I leave, right? Because why not, right? Now, I've never done that for the record, but I have actually known people who have. No, I'm not going to name names. <laughs> I've known people who've done that for that exact reason. And I'm like, dude, don't. You get caught, that that's a crime, dude. I mean, it's it's petty theft, but it is still worse. It can get worse. No, no. Trust me. It can get worse. <laughs> but you can see how it's adjacent to that mentality, because it's still a measure of being in the moment and not really thinking things through. And I mention this because that feels to be not only exactly where AG and Archer are when they brawl, but their overall mindset when they decide to just do the test anyways. <laughs> I mean, Forrest even flat out says, head back now and I'll see what I can do about not landing you in prison. But I'll come back to that in a moment. So, this is also the good time where I mention, this episode reminds me a lot of the first duty over in TNG. Do you remember that episode? I don't blame you if you don't. It's the one where uh, Wesley's in the Academy and he's working with Lacarna, who is totally, totally, distinctly a different person from uh, from Tom Paris. And they do this big stunt, and they get caught, and a guy dies, and he, he Wesley fesses, fesses up to it, etc., 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 right? Um, the reason I bring that episode up is because one of the things I pointed out in my rumination on that very episode is, what did they think they were going to accomplish? I had a few people respond in the comments of what they thought they were going to accomplish, and it was basically, they're stupid college kids. There were some good reasons comments. I don't mean to summarize them. It was good stuff, and I do read all of those. But the point is, yeah, I don't think they were really thinking about what they were going to accomplish here, which brings me to this very moment. We're totally going to do this, and it's totally going to work out, because shenanigans, right? Now, what's funny is this did actually work out, but think about this for a moment. The Vulcans are actually present for this endeavor, and they push hard for the idea that they did this in order to prove that the the project should keep going. And, and I think this is probably the most critical part, Archer and by uh, tantamount both Tucker and Ag are willing to lay down their careers if it means the project keeps going. That's critical right there. I think that was probably the tipping point and what made it so that they merely get three months of being grounded, which, by the way, I gotta say, I know Starfleet's pretty lenient, and I'm fine with that, but three months grounded after that is uh, insanely lenient. <laughs> Regardless, you'll notice that this then leads to the change in the winds. Forrest ends up getting bumped up to Admiral. Archer becomes Captain. AG goes on to do whatever he ends up doing. Tucker ends up becoming his Chief Engineer. And Starfleet starts shifting towards the anti-Vulcan League. What I'm trying to say is that I'm thinking, based on evidence, that there were members, and again, this is all headcanon, members of Starfleet Command who were kowtowing to the Vulcans because they basically had no political capital to use on their favor, but demonstrable proof that we are actually ready and we can actually make a Warp 2 engine, and here's the literal proof, and a year of going over that proof with a meticulous comb so that the Vulcans couldn't deny it, gave them the extra weight they needed to start tipping the scale in their particular direction. Food for thought. Now, this is when the second flaw of the episode happens. And guess what? It's like, oh god, they're they're breaking up. No! Commercial break. Archer's in the craft. He's fine, okay? Now I know what you're saying. Lore, okay, stop, stop whining. What would you do? I'll tell you exactly what I would do. So, you know, what happens is... You know, the ship's shaking, and it's like, oh, God, no! <laughs> Cut to black. 
and then come back from the the uh, come back from the commercial, and the ship just explodes in this big spectacular explosion. And then it there's just a jump cut to T'Pol who's just staring at him. And Archer looks at her like, uh, okay, no, no, that's. And then he explains what actually happened. In other words, try to make that part of the story he's telling. I know that makes it less of a flashback and more of a tale, but at least you're doing something with it, right? Uh, so, <clears throat> uh, sacrifice career, three months. Archer moves on. Uh, there's a, okay. Last comment. Co- last comment here. Um, so they actually do find the nebula, the Robinson Nebula, and. This is, again, where I give credit to Bakula, and possibly Burton, because I don't know how much of this is on the actor, or on the script, or on the director, or on the second unit director, or on the camera guy, or any of the other 50,000 people who worked on this episode. Let's just go down the list. Um, But I mention all this because Bakula's acting is actually quite good in this scene. He gets across awe, A-W-E, awe, quite well. And he's almost, you can almost see he's moved to tears. He doesn't actually start crying, but you know that that thing where the eyes just kind of glisten a little bit and he's just, he is legitimately emotionally overwhelmed by what they have accomplished. And that makes sense because this is in honor of his dead friend. As he says straight up, because they show and tell here, something I've been getting more and more in favor of as I've been analyzing more television, he was worried and afraid and terrified that, you know, his his friend is dead and will never experience this. And so in the depths of that emotional chasm, he is reminded why they went through all that they went through. And he's reminded that they were right, that it wasn't for nothing. And that Robinson, over in the afterlife, which is apparently a big white place and Q's just hanging out, is at least pleased... I'm sorry, bad joke. It, it would at least be pleased because... They found this new, amazing, brand new nebula, and they wouldn't have done it if not for their sacrifice and their work and their effort. It was worth it. I'm not sure there's any words in the English language that are more valuable and more powerful than it was worth it. 